Hi everyone, welcome to the Blue Sky podcast, Two Pints of Lager and a Spreadsheet. I'm Dave Gibson, I'm here with my co-founder John Dudgeon. Today our special guest is Zero Legend and all-round nice guy Gary Turner. On this week's episode we'll be chatting about computing in the early 1980s. The origin of Zero's values and culture. And why Gary's mom is more famous than he is. So, Gary Turner, uh, with a fairly eclectic CV these days, um, welcome to the show. There must have been life um, before Zero, which is what you're probably best known as. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the, the humble beginnings? Uh, yeah, thank, thank you for the invitation to join such a esteemed and uh, notorious uh, bunch of guests you've had on. I've listened to a few of your podcasts and they're, I love how you you mix it up. I hope I don't ruin it. Um, I'm sure you're going to try. I have to try really, really hard to do Tarnish your reputation. <laughs> uh, oh my goodness! Like before zero, was there even anything before zero? I, I don't. I don't. It's a long time ago now. But um, yeah, yeah. I started out um, like a lot of kids that that kind of were teenagers in the 1980s with the huge. I think um, the huge privilege to be around when like home computing became a thing and when the the consumerization of technology with the Apple Mac and with the Sinclair Spectrum and the Commodore 64 and all that stuff really exploded into into reality and that, and that was an amazing time to be a kid and as unwieldy as they were by today's standards and technology, they were just, it was an amazing time. And and I, and I say I feel privileged because I think after the 80s, the 90s didn't really follow the same curve. You know what I mean? A lot of, um, there was, there's been quite a bit of uh, talk about how instead of teaching kids computing skills and programming, it was ICT. And so I think a, a, a couple of generations after me or, or one generation after my time, at least, weren't in the guts of coding and building and electronics in the way that you were in the 80s. I'm pleased to say it's now come back, obviously, because technology is now infinitely more accessible and you've got things like the Raspberry Pi and, uh, and, and environments like Minecraft. And so I think kids are now back in that zone of creativity and building and learning. But but I, I I was part of that 1980s shift and, lear- and learned a lot and was completely captivated by technology um, to the extent that I really didn't care very much about much else I was doing at high school. All of my energy and all of my enthusiasm was directed into into computing. I kind of taught myself basic, playing around, hacking around, hanging out with mates, learning, tweaking, tuning. And um, and it, it's funny. Uh, I mean, I, I, it, it was that early, and I, I grew up in Glasgow, and there wasn't even and in Scotland in those days. If in England you had O levels, in Scotland you had O grades, and you had A levels and higher grades. There was just a different, uh, a different kind of um, system, and there wasn't even a Scottish O grade for computing in the nineteen eighties. So I I, I, I uh, love to tell people I have one O level. 
um, I've got a whole bunch of O grades and higher grades, but I, we had to import an English O-level exam to my school <laughs> in, in Glasgow, which I passed, I'm pleased to say. And um, and because I was um, probably, it was me and maybe another couple of uh, people in my class that were really into this and we were way further advanced than the rest of the kids in the class. Um, to the extent that I remember the, our, our teacher in the computing lab would, would quietly come to us for advice on how to do things. And um, we were just allowed to do whatever we wanted, where everybody else had to do the kind of classwork. But then when it came to doing our O-level assignment, and like most of the class got really simple kind of um, basic programming routines that they had to develop, like make your name appear 10 times on screen or something like that. Um, I, I was given the job of building a bank, a complete banking system with an ATM front end and and uh, data complex data structures and transaction management and statement printing and back end reporting and and I just to teach me a lesson for being so smart. Yeah, some banks and don't what, even manage that these days. Yeah, well, what what is interesting, and, and and I love this idea that like you don't realize it at the time, but those those initial experiences are often very formative and like directing you down a pathway. And I remember I approached that assignment, um, and I was not a talented programmer. I was a hacker. I would just like do the minimum amount of really messy code to get something to work. Whereas lots of people would sit and really think about structured programming, really elegantly kind of building the code. And so I probably spent about 20 minutes doing the kind of complicated back end stuff really messily. And then spent about a month on the front end and made it look amazing. And so so I think I was this, looking back now, I was this like prototype, what you'd call now like a interface designer or a product marketing. I was much more involved in the, or, or captivated by the front end of the software, not the back end. I could do the back end, but I love the front end. And so therefore I think my career has followed um, that that path. Um, I, mean, I mean, I went down the route or, uh, again, back in the kind of mid eighties, if you wanted a career in computing, that basically meant you had to be a programmer, which meant you had to get a degree in computer science. And I kind of embarked on that route and then abandoned it after a year because I thought, well, I, I love it. I love technology and I want a career in technology, but I don't think I want to be a programmer. And so I, I jumped out of that and managed to get a job in an IT services business in Glasgow, literally in, as in the kind of commercial team and the sales team and going out and meeting and visiting and discussing kind of problems, business issues, accounting, process management, um, retail, uh, factory floor, whatever, and we'd either build software or we'd sell prepackaged software. And 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 I think many of the many of the behaviours I learned in my early twenties doing that, I still can. I think I'm the same person. Don't tell anyone, but actually, I'm just the same enthusiast about technology. And and I've been able to make a career of my enthusiasm and my fluency for talking about tech. And and that's that's and I've done that for thirty years. Fascinating. I have um, so uh, back in the early eighties, um, I went on a COBOL programming course as well, and did a did a career switch from from banking to all of a sudden being uh, initially a programmer, but in a in a very small team, very small, very busy software house. Uh, I was employee number ten, 
um, in through the door. It was um, it was an anarchic. It was disorganised. Uh, I loved every single minute um, of it. But yeah, I suddenly discovered that um, I was uh, like the world's most average programmer. But you know, I didn't care about the code. I didn't care about the structure. I cared about what what it what it was for. Yeah. What we're trying to achieve here. How does this yeah. affect the business? What what's this business all about? Um, and that, that that swiftly kind of put me on a career away from touching keyboards and making a mess of the code and and into the kind of analysis and design uh, route at that stage. It, it's kind of funny what what really kind of rings you about. I couldn't have I couldn't have invented something or or, or, or come up with some programming off the top of my head to to, to save my life. Yeah, I think um, yeah, I, I, a lot of people do that, and I have huge respect for people that really do stay the course and 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 have an amazing. And they, they they fully pursue the engineering aspect um, of software development and coding, um, and but, but because that was where I began, and I could shake a stick at it, I was never going to be you know a bit like you. I was like the the world's okayest programmer. Um, I I had enough understanding of it to be dangerous, and to kind of have a foot in both camps, and so. I could understand, empathize, communicate, and relate to software development, software programming, the art of the possible, and work with the software teams and, and kind of design software. But then I was, my other foot was in the kind of front end, the customer facing side of it. And, and therefore, I, I guess I'm that, I'm that interface, that bridge between a problem that needs solved for a business um, or a customer. And then the the, comp the the magic of software, which is literally still magic. We take it for granted now, but the, I remember seeing software for the first time doing stuff. And you think, this is like, this is unbelievable. This is like supernatural that you're making things happen on a screen and it's kind of following your instructions. And so I've, I, I, I'm basically the same guy. I've just managed to convince people to give me more responsibility along the way. Yeah. Um, but to collect that, you need to demonstrate understanding. So, how did uh, really that first role with your with your IT services business prepare you for that? Um, well, for, fortunately for me, I mean, uh, a big part of um, um, I guess most of my career has been in the laterally after the beginning has really been in the world of accounting and business and financial software. Um, although in my first five or six years, I was in hardware and software and networks and systems and in, in, in very diverse range of, of um, specialisms. But um, in those first five years, um, uh, accounting and accounting software was a big part of it. A, bit, a, lot, a lot of businesses were, were moving to moving off of pen and paper and onto software for the first time. And I had no clue about accounting. I'm not an accountant. Um, and I, I had no idea what I was talking about, but my mum is a bookkeeper. And so I would kind of come home from the office at the age of like 21, 22 and I'm going, mum, what, what's a, what's a, what's, what's a cruel and what's a, what's a nominal ledger? And, and, and she'd sit and explain it. And so I had this great kind of coach in, in, in the background kind of pointing me in the right direction and simplifying it. Um, and and therefore and, and I, I therefore I've learned accounting through a computer screen. Yeah, you know, I haven't learned accounting in a classroom, and I'm sure there's whole swathes of accounting that I should know that I don't, um, which would make me a very bad accountant. But I I understand accounting that obviously having been in it for so long, um, and that's really been the specialism that I've followed for the last like 25 years at least. 
Um, and I think those first five years, um, although I dropped out of my degree in computer science, I kind of did a practical MBA. You know what I mean? I, I think um, I I would have met and worked with hundreds of businesses in Scotland of all sizes, large, small, medium size, of all industry types. Um, and so I was exposed early on to a very broad range of problems, contexts, cultures. Um, and the common thread through all of that was how can technology solve a problem? But I think what it also gave me, which I think I've massively benefited from, is a real sense of empathy for what it means to be predominantly a small business because they outnumber all businesses in terms of quantity. And so when I, when I remember whether it was at Zero or at Microsoft or, or at Pegasus, where I was before that, when we're sitting down and we're trying to conceive of a new product or a new feature or a new, um, a new thing, I wasn't just looking at a whiteboard with a bunch of people. I was like, I had these little programs in my head of uh, that I'd learned early on in my career where I could picture being in a tiny little industrial estate on a wet Tuesday morning in winter in Scotland and the heating hasn't been on all weekend. So the offices are cold. The coffee mug is chipped. There's fan heaters everywhere. There's a big Alsatian sleeping under the desk. Um, there's mouse traps kicking about, and there's a sandwich van just pulled up outside selling home, like sandwich baps. You know what I mean? So I have this very vivid um, kind of like reality, and I can, so that I know what it's like. Small businesses are not just some abstract um, kind of like target customer. Um, I kind of live with them and among them for for the first five years of my career, and I've kept that with me, and therefore. I think it's that empathy has made it easier for me to to relate to the problems that we're trying to solve, and if that's helped us solve them more quickly or or more gracefully, then I think that I think that must have been a benefit. And Gary, um, I know sort of Edinburgh and Glasgow currently the tech scene up there is like absolutely thriving, isn't it? There's so much going on. Are you, are you sort of day to day? Are you involved and in mentoring and all that all that kind of thing? It has changed incredibly, um, and I, I haven't lived in Scotland for 22 years now, so it's, it's changed a lot since I lived there. Um, I'm actually a, a, an angel investor in, in a business um, that's based in Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, and I haven't done many angel investments in the last year, but but that that was that was um, uh, one of it's a business called Vala, right. V A L L A, and uh, they're based in Edinburgh and approaching the problem of um, employment dispute resolution. So it's nothing to do with accounting or, or even a, a, anything I've experienced before. And so I think th they're a great example of how th there, there is, like, across the whole UK, there are these clusters, uh, even in the Northeast um, and in Birmingham, and in, I was down in Bristol uh, a couple of days ago. And previously it would have been Maybe like in, in the south of England along the M4 corridor was where typically the big international software companies would have based themselves. Yeah. And therefore, most of the tech talent in the country would have been along that kind of M4 west of London corridor. But I think what's happened um, 
it, it, like it's it's not not the, a, a great metaphor but it's almost like um tech clusters are like libraries every town should have one now and every town probably does have one to some extent and that it, it well why not it's it's completely accessible and open to everybody and and it's now a really interesting career pathway for so many so many people kind of coming out of education now where they can either start their own business because they're enabled by technology or they actually start their own technology business or, or, or join a startup. And so I love that. I love that that regional dimension has massively, massively kicked off. Um, and, and even London, I mean, like maybe 10 or 15 years ago, you, you'd have been crazy to think of building a startup software business in London. And now that's one of the largest um, internationally. And that's only in the last decade. I think that's one of the things I love about the tech sector is that sense of community, though, within the uh, sort of nationally and regionally um, as well. And, you know, people are just in it together, helping each other out in uh, in the tech startup community. And we were talking sort of earlier this week about a festival that's going on in the northeast later in the year. And everyone's like really excited because there's all of the tech businesses that are sort of going under the radar a little bit. If you speak to a kid in a school, it's kind of like, well, who who's a big tech business in in Newcastle, and they'll be like, I don't, I don't, I don't know who it is, sort of thing. Um, we won't, we won't mention the the obvious one for ob- obvious reasons. But um, that was when we um first started working with Zero. I think that was what we got into. It was like it was the community feel of 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 Zero at that point that really en- encapsulated myself and Dave and wanted us to kind of get involved in that journey for some bizarre. <laughs> reason was that sort of an intentional thing that you did that that yeah. you brought brought to it and did definitely and by the way i mean sage is an incredible story uh, and 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 the fact that the largest technology company to come out of the uk is based in the northeast is remarkable yeah. and, and completely accidental and that's the way that yeah. the technology companies founded like 20 30 40 years ago it was just wherever the person that decided to set it up lived yeah, you know, there was yeah. no. You, if you were if you were building a, a an accounting software company in 1980 or 81 or whenever it was, Sage got going. You wouldn't say let's let's do it and let's move to London. It's like no, actually, there was no technology industry. There was no software industry. You were one of yeah. one, and therefore we'll just build it here. Um, but over time, those communities have grown, whether that's in the northeast, and you then get this kind of um, the. The, the the alumni, you know, the, the people that used to work for Sage have gone on and set up their own software companies in the area. And you then get that sense of community and kind of cross pollination. And that happens across the UK a lot more now. But community is a, 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 has always been a really important um, dimension. I, I think I, I won't take credit for it because I, I think Rod Drury was, was a huge Microsoft fanboy in the earlier stages of his career and and um he would he would um every every appropriate and even inappropriate opportunity he'd bring out a photo of him younger with Bill Gates as his kind of claim to fame <laughs> but one of the things that I think Rod learned from Microsoft was the power of that community and the Microsoft have had their kind of partner partner network for as long as there's been Microsoft and it's one of the most impressive um, communities globally. I mean, it's like hundreds, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of businesses connected with Microsoft. And so I think Rod definitely brought to zero 
that that recognition that building a community around this product was going to be a really important important aspect of it um and to be deliberate about that um and do and do it well um and so community for zero was was really important albeit maybe the the inspiration from for that came from businesses like microsoft and so like zerocon an event like zerocon which is zero's big annual conference um in the sphere of accounting is a pretty exceptional event because what's what, what passes for a good accounting industry conference prior to zero was not was not a very high bar but actually <laughs> zerocon again kind of like borrowing from the, the world of software and the world of technology zerocon microsoft have been doing events like that for 30 years uh, i've been at them um, I, I was at them when i worked for microsoft and rod had been and so bringing the concept of the, what was the microsoft worldwide partner co conference wwpc and it, and it goes every year and basically said, well, we'll we'll do that and we'll do it for accountants and we'll give them a good time and we'll, we'll, we'll give them some great software demos and so that's something that's pretty obvious to a software person like me but it's not obvious to accountants and so there, there was some method to the madness that's for sure uh, it, it certainly works and i think that um you know deliberate focus on building the community um married to your own sense of empathy that that certainly seems to have built it into every single member of the team um, that you built certainly in the early stages and and that that is you know one massive massive reason why we turned to zero uh, instead of some of your competitors because we, we just felt welcomed we felt we felt you understood us you understood our you know we're not just where we were now but, but our aspirations were absolutely yeah um whereas uh yeah some of the competition didn't 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 quite do that and then um so we'll get back to that in a minute and then yeah the very first zero con it, it was totally wow because i can remember um before that going to a, a seminar with john and we kind of walked good. in quite late just 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 a few minutes before kickoff and walked in at the back of the room and there's about 60 or 70 people sitting there in suits in absolute silence and john looks at me and says fnl is full of accountants <laughs> just both rolled our eyes and i crack it um, and yeah zero con uh, was a little bit noisier uh, than that, or is a little bit noisy than that. I think as well, Gary, we were talking before about sort of, um, you know, um, attention span, and my attention span is awful, or, you know, it's very short as well. And so when I go into a, an, a into an accounting setting, it switches off. Um, but zero con, I'm, I'm awake, I'm alive. You know, there's so much energy in the room, so many ideas and and inspirations around, and. Um, yeah, Dave was telling us off for um, brown nose and before I'm brown nose, you know, so uh, like seeing you on stage actually and in, in, in front of so many people and, you know, I guess how how do you how do you equip yourself for that moment? And, you know, is, is that something you set out to do on day one when you were, you know, um, coding and doing all that kind of stuff? Definitely not. I, I'm my, my default state is uh, uh, introversion. So I'm an introvert. Yeah. Um, I love my own company. Um, I'm not, I don't need to go out and, and, and kind of be uh, front of stage and be the center of attention, but I can switch it on if I'm like professionally required to do that. And, and clearly I've got, I, I must have some capacity to do it. Otherwise I'd run a mile. 
Um, but um, I've been, I've been doing, I learned to do that. I mean, I wouldn't have, I remember the first time I ever had to sit down and talk to a group of people early on in my career and probably demonstrating some accounting software to them. And I was like, I remember it very clearly. It was the Scottish Milk Marketing Board in Paisley in Scotland. That shows you it's like indelibly <laughs> burned into my brain. Yeah. And I had to go in and see the accounts team and show them uh, Pegasus, which was the accounting software that uh, our business uh, was promoting. And it was only a team of about eight people. I was like completely paralyzed having to do that. But that was a very long time ago. And I did it a lot and learned. And and so you get to the point of of, of zero con and doing a keynote to like three and a half thousand people on a massive, massive stage. And everybody's like the press is there. Investors are there. Everybody's there. So it's kind of like. I used to joke, it's a bit like the kind of tightrope walk over the Niagara Falls. It's incredibly impressive as long as you don't fall. You know, it's like, high, it's either you, you nail it or you completely blow it. Um, high stakes. Um, but that's a long time working up to that. You don't, you don't start in front of um, 3,000 people. Um, and I enjoy telling stories if it's not obvious here. I mean, I, I can, I can, I think with my mouth. I talk yeah. a lot if I, if I think. And although I'm an introvert, I love sharing ideas and talking and kicking ideas around. And um, and uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy that. I mean, for an introvert, I love that whole um, center stage keynote thing I, I i don't i'm not fearful of it i think i might probably tense up in the kind of five minutes before going on stage and go a bit quiet and a bit kind of inwardly kind of calm but i'm i love it um it's not for everybody but um it's great fun i once randomly um I think I walked into ZeroCon. Uh, you won't remember this, but you, and we were, we had a brief chat. I was starstruck because, you know, then 10 minutes later you're on stage. And that was kind of probably one of the reasons I've asked, just asked you that question. Because I was like, how did he transition, you know, from yeah, just walking in and then all of a sudden there you were for like an hour or whatever kind, kind of talking. Yeah. So. Th thank you, John. And you should never have been starstruck, but... Um... <laughs> That reminds me of a story again in, in the early days of, of getting zero off the ground. And I think it, we, we were going to the 2020 conference, which is like an accounting um, industry event that runs every year. And this before we even had like we didn't have any marketing people in, in the UK. There was probably, I don't know, 50 people in the whole of zero and 45 of them would have been in New Zealand. And we were kind of borrowing marketing support overnight. Um, and I'd signed us up to go to the 2020 conference. And because I was like chief cook and bottle washer and not very organized, I'd forgotten that we needed to send on like our brochures to the event organizer before the day so they could put them all in the bags so that when the delegates arrived, they had like a zero brochure in it. And of course, I right. didn't do that. Right. And so it's the day before the event. And I realized I hadn't done that. And so... I went out and I'm working from home because we don't have an office, but fortunately my garage doubled as the kind of stationary cupboard for all of our promotional things, which was fine until the day a truck showed up and complained that I didn't have a forklift truck at my house to get a pallet off it. But anyway, I had a, I had a bunch of brochures. That's another story my wife hasn't ever forgiven me for. <laughs> I, I got a, bo a couple of boxes of brochures, threw them in the back of the car. I had just picked my daughter up from school and we just drove up to, I think it was near the NEC, 
and I'm I go to the door of of 2020's office and kind of press the buzzer and say I'm here I'm delivering the brochures for zero for their event and I'm like offloading all these brochures out the back of my car and then I, I leave and then the following day it's at the 2020 conference in Birmingham and I'm then I come up on stage and do a little kind of 10 minute keynote for zero and you can see the person that I'd given the brochures to the day before going why is that courier up on stage <laughs> doing, doing a keynote for zero? But those are some of the kind of startup stories that um, are quite funny in retrospect. It wasn't funny at the time, but it, it, um, it's it's what every startup has to do, and it's yeah, you just roll his sleeves up and do whatever shit. Needs absolutely, doing. Yeah, absolutely, can't, can't tell. Um, yeah, we were uh, we were talking about um, culture um earlier on so um yeah so rod wanted to import it you kind of wanted it but there's a, a massive difference between wanting to foster the right culture within an organization and actually making it happen so how did you uh, approach that so i think um and and i've been asked that question a number of times by different people because obviously zero's origins are in new zealand and i built the business in the UK and they're 11,000 miles apart. So how do you, how do you manage to kind of create a cohesive culture that no matter whether you're in Wellington or in London, it kind of still feels like the same company. I, I think a big part of that is, um, I mean, Rod is, is a couple of years older than me, had a similar bunch of experiences in the software industry, uh, worked a lot with Microsoft and had, and I know and Rod, Rod has said before, he, he wanted to build the kind of company he would want to work for, like not being an asshole, having an, an open, human, inclusive culture. Um, I think there's maybe a, a Kiwi dimension to that, or that kind of New Zealand ethic definitely there. But that, that proved to be um, very reflective and, and compatible with the technology industry that experience that I had had. And so R Rod didn't need to explain to me what the zero culture was. I, I could I, I could very quickly pick that up. And it actually, it was very similar to my own preference for how to operate and how to lead people and how to manage. Um, and so, um, and I think across the the world now, um, and zero, I think must be four and a half, nearly five thousand people across the world, in many different countries. That 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 recipe has been preserved and and built upon. Um, I, I loved that the the, the um, employee number two at zero was a chap called uh, Philip Fairlinger, um, down in New Zealand. Philip's actually American, but lives in New Zealand. And is now the co-CEO of, of another business in New Zealand called Upstock, having left Zero a while back. And, and I love the way that Philip explained the Zero culture in that if you're not careful, if you're too prescriptive and you have like a, a little a little kind of green book or a, a set of rules that people have to follow, then, then it becomes, I think, um, not that interesting you know what I mean it may be appropriate but then the business it may be appropriate at the beginning but then the business changes and grows and more people come in and you, if you're not careful you end up with like the people that were here at the beginning that defined the culture and then everybody that came in and had to adopt it and Philip I'm, I'm murdering Philip's much more elegant explanation of it but but he once said it's like 
here's the culture as it is today. Here's how we operate. Here are our values. And if you're coming into the business, then you have to add to that. You have to contribute to that. And so it's this organic evolving culture rather than something that was set in stone in 2006 or 2007 when Rod started the business. And I love that. And and so that open, permissive, come in and like, this is where it is today. I think it's pretty good. But what can you bring? What can you add? And that therefore means that everybody is responsible for the culture. It's not just what the boss thinks. And that's certainly one aspect, I think, of what's enabled Zero to to maintain that. Yeah, I think we're in agreement with that. Uh, you know, the culture is how your team behaves. Um, you know, you can you can bandy as many words about as you want as a as a set of leaders, but it's how people are actually behaving, particularly if you're not in the room um, as well. And and that's what we try and get over in uh, uh, Blue Sky is there's, a, there's this, not just a set of values, but a set of behaviours associated with those values that we want people to demonstrate um, and move on. It feels like you've done the same. Um, we, um, we we were exposed to a couple of your um, fresh-faced, um, and presumably very junior staff in the early days, the, the likes of Glenn Foster and, and Kat Bond. Um, it must be great watching people like that go through a journey as well. I love that. I love that. I actually had lunch with Glenn uh, this week. I haven't seen Glenn for a number of months, and um, uh, it was great to catch up with him and seeing him kind of um, plowing his own furrow now um, with Libio. And uh, I love I get a huge sense of satisfaction um, from creating an opportunity for people to come and build amazing careers. You know what I mean? I, 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 I'm very grateful for the success that Zero has enjoyed and all of the kind of corporate and commercial and all the kind of financial um, and growth results that Zero have demonstrated. But I think my biggest sense of satisfaction has been convincing smart people to put their trust in me and in Zero to invest significant chunks of their life and career in this venture and then to see them like grow and and develop and be rewarded from the back of that and i think that's a that's a very humbling privilege i think as a leader to 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 do that to to find smart people convince them to follow you and then let them go and let them really grow and develop and 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 that's something that um yeah i i i think i value that more than however many million customers zero's got these days and however many awards that zero has won and all of the the the, the, the great successes we've enjoyed seeing people grow is, is is amazing so yeah huge huge fan of of some of those names you've mentioned and many many people that have helped us along the way um, talking about awards, of course, it's not just Zero that has, but um, was it your mother's influence that got you the 2019 Personality of the Year with the Institute of Certified Bookkeepers? Well, more than that, they actually gave her an award, like for being my mum, which wow. was pretty remarkable. <laughs> um, and um, which she she loved that actually. I, we we flew her down to to their to their conference and their dinner um this is before the pandemic and they um the and i, I invited my mom along because because what happens every year we used to go to the institute of certified bookkeepers uh, conference and we would do a keynote there and i shamelessly started every one of my keynotes reminding everybody that my mom was a bookkeeper 
right? And therefore, to a, like a room of four hundred bookkeepers, I'm like, basically, you're all just like, like my, my mom uh, in terms of your your career. To build empathy, like classic kind of like, how do you build empathy for an audience? I'm the son of a bookkeeper, therefore I can't be all that bad. And because I shamelessly promoted my mother's um, career to my own advantage, I, I, I think I, I overdid it. And, and, and then she became more famous than me um, in that audience. And uh, I, I remember, and as a, as a, so therefore as a, as a kind of, to, to mitigate my own sense of guilt, I decided I must bring her down to one of their, their big dinners one year. So we flew her down and they then gave her an award. They made her a companion of the Institute and um, uh, which I thought was a, was a lovely touch. And so um, she, she thought it was amazing. She got to be a bit of a celebrity up on stage for a few minutes and, uh, and, uh, and has a certificate on her wall back home. Class, that. That's a brilliant story. Um, anyway, post zero. So you've stepped away from zero. Um, done a little bit of investing, doing a little bit of NAD type work. Um, and you're also um, now an influencer or a blogger. Well, I, I am a blogger again. And this is, um, um, I've got an answer for everything, Dave, haven't I? I was a blogger in 2001. Wow. Before people knew what bloggers were, so yeah. I actually had a blog. It's still out there. You need to fight. You need to. I, I know where it is, but nobody else does. Okay, that's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, and so I started blogging in two thousand and one, and from two thousand and one to two thousand and five, I kind of ran with the right wrong crowd. You know, this kind of band of other bloggers and builders and creators that were really trying to work out what the what the web meant, what the internet meant for business, and I wrote probably about 2000 articles on my blog over about three or four year period, like hypothesizing about, well, what if Google built an operating system? What would that mean? And guess what? I mean, Google then built, built an operating system and lots of people have them in their pockets. And those kinds of questions. And so I did that and I was, uh, by day I was like managing, I think I was managing director at Pegasus for, for about four years. And, and I was running this very traditional software company by day. And then I'd go home and I'd like, be this on the frontier of of software and, and development, and I then kind of um, ran out of appetite to do that, and and haven't haven't really been blogging. I did a bit of blogging on the Zero blog and some on LinkedIn, but I decided to kind of recapture it again last year in the form of a newsletter, which is an alternative to blog, but it's basically the same thing. So I, I do that. I wouldn't call myself an influencer, um, though. Uh, thank you. Um, my life now, uh, in the year since I stepped away from zero, is is certainly less fast paced than it was, and that's deliberate. I think I was in in my role at zero for twelve and a half years, and after twelve and a half years with full afterburners on, um, building an amazing business and flying all around the world and keynotes and hiring and and everything else, and it was amazing. Um, I thought, well, I'm kind of I ticked over into my fifties, and I'm thinking, when does when does when does it get any easier? When do I when do I get to work less hard? Because I'm running at 100 miles an hour and have been. Um, and, and and when I caught myself having those thoughts and questions, probably around 2020, I thought, well, maybe 
maybe that's a sign that I need to kind of shift shift gear. And, 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 and unless I can commit to running 100 miles an hour full afterburners on for another five years or 10 years at zero, I can't commit at all. You know what I mean? I think you have to have, you can't, if you can't see the end in sight, keep going. And so um, after about a year, I mean, I, I remember sharing that with Steve Vamos, who was Zero's CEO, um, and saying, like, I think I've probably got like another year in me. And everything's fine and, and there's no problem, but we probably do need to find my replacement and then find something else for me to do. I don't care what you call me. I don't care if it's one day a month or five days a month or whatever. I don't care how much you pay me. Just find something else that can be useful at for zero. And so I had the ultimate privilege of having an amazing 12 years, really kind of hopefully as graceful an exit as you can have from a job like that, handing over to, to Alex von Schirmeister, who's doing a fantastic job. Um, I then I got to spend time supporting zero um, on the board of Plan Day, which is um, uh, the business that Zero acquired a couple of years ago in Copenhagen. So St Steve, to his word, found something for me to do and kept me in the family. Um, and in the last year, I've been uh, kind of learning what it what it means to be an angel investor, um, trying to support other CEOs and founders, doing a bit of executive coaching and mentoring. Uh, and partly the, the, the reason I started my newsletter in September was that um, I, I probably have five or six kind of video calls a week with other CEOs and founders who are, who are just interested in chatting with me and I'll either invest in them or or just give them a couple of tips. And I was being asked a lot of the same questions over and over again, and I'm fundamentally lazy, I think. And I thought rather than just like, how do you hire your first sales team? I go, if I have to answer that question ever again, I think <laughs> I think I'll give up. And so I thought, I'm, I'm going to, I'm just going to write it down and then people can just read it and I won't have to do these Zoom calls. And so that's where the newsletter came from. Um, and, um, and that kind of, it also gives me a bit of a discipline as well. I've got to keep my brain pumping every, every week to come up with something else to talk about. And so I'm busy in a, in a kind of plural way. I've probably got about five or six things happening at any one point in time, um, rather than 500 as it was in my zero role. And, uh, but I, I, but it's a different kind of busy. It's not the crazy 14 hour a day busy. It's maybe two or three hours a day, a couple of days a week, um, which, uh, which I'm really enjoying because it gives me the, the headspace to think and to really um, kind of consider where I want to spend my time doing. You've certainly got the discipline because uh, newsletter number 18 landed in my inbox just literally a couple of minutes before we, we started speaking. So, so I'm, I, I just had visions of you kind of beavering away like, oh, I've got a podcast to record in a minute. Yeah, that stuff. was the, yeah. Uh, you were my deadline. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't come onto the podcast and not have published this week's newsletter. Okay, okay. Um, so apart from half a dozen businessy things, what does Gary do in his spare time? Oh, so uh, for the last year, we, I've, I'm a very bad uh, home improvement project manager. Um uh, I'm very bad at home improvement, full stop. You wouldn't ever want me to do DIY, but uh, we moved out into a small village in the countryside just at the beginning of the pandemic. And there's been a whole bunch of things that we wanted to do that we couldn't do because of the pandemic. And so for the last year, we've been kind of catching up on bathroom remodelings and we've had solar installed and a whole range of other things. And so 
um, I've, I've been kind of um, traffic managing white vans on my driveway for the last uh, year, it seems, and um, and and that's been that's been quite good. Um, uh, I like walking. I, I love. I don't do it enough. No, the weather hopefully is not quite so Baltic. I might do it a bit more. Um, but I love listening to podcasts. I think podcasts are my kind of primary medium. Um, and I'm. I think I'm. I think I might subscribe to too many. If I'm honest, I think I must have like fifty or sixty podcasts. But I love the fact that a, like your own podcast app is like your own personal radio station, and it's such a weird mix of things that only you are interested in that you'd never get on a, a regular radio station. And some of them are daily, some of them are weekly, some of them are monthly. And so I, I love listening to podcasts. I've probably given over months of my life listening to podcasts in the last year. When I finished with Zero, I kind of jumped back into a whole bunch of hobbies that I somehow didn't have time to do. So I, I, I started playing guitar again. I played guitar since I was a teenager, but I got really back into it. And, and I then discovered if you haven't played guitar for a while and you're really back into it, you give yourself tennis elbow. Because I was like thrashing the strings too hard. And then about a couple of weeks later, I'm thinking, why is my arm sore? And I then finally worked out that I was playing guitar too aggressively. Um, and so I, 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 do, I do a whole kind of range of rather eclectic thing. I love video games. I love podcasts. I love playing guitar. Uh, I love. I still, sadly, love reading and following the tech industry. I'm still, unfortunately, hopelessly addicted to tech and technology and software. And so I'm still spending a lot of time reading and thinking about what's coming next and where the next frontiers that uh, we need to jump to. So uh, quite dull all up, I think, Dave. Sorry to say. Well, it doesn't sound dull to me. I, I suspect uh, you know you're still young enough to have a lot. To offer and yeah, when that when that light bulb moment goes off through your through your research and the fact that you've got time to put your feet up and actually think about it and then then go for it, absolutely. Um, so the clock's ticking. Um, do you have one last nugget of advice for our audience? Um, well, so several nuggets of advice on my newsletter, which you obviously uh, yeah. kindly mentioned, and so I, I won't repeat any of that stuff there. I think. Um, that's on, that's on Everscale, everybody. By the way, so yeah, and I think yeah. it's I think I linked to it off my Twitter account. I can't remember, um, uh, which is at Gary Turner. Um, I think I've got two things to share. One of them is um, the, the the idea that, and you and you only get to realise this once you get to a certain stage in your career, is that I think ninety nine percent of people have imposter syndrome. Um, but the cruel um, part of the, the kind of imposter syndrome bug is that you can't tell anyone you have imposter syndrome. And therefore, although the majority of people have it, it's kind of designed into the to the kind of disordered thinking that you can never admit that you have it. But I think most people do. Uh, and it's the ones that don't have it that are the ones you should worry about because they think they're capable when they're not. Um, which is a whole other discussion. And so I think uh, what I've learned in my career is that you probably can achieve whatever it is you set yourself out to do. I mean, clearly not, maybe not brain surgery um, or, or flying a jetliner without adequate training, but most things in the, in the, in the field of business are attainable by pretty much anybody. And 
but we all have this habit of underestimating our self-doubt and our own abilities and if you can overcome that and once you realize that actually you can do anything um and and then one of the things that um i often advise people to do is if once you give yourself permission to try and learn and develop and you might actually not just to be capable but you might be really good at it who knows is is to um a technique that i use a lot i know i've always used is like success visualization like picture yourself doing it and the more you see yourself in that future state whether that's going on stage to deliver a keynote or starting your own business or growing your team or whatever it happens to be you're 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 confronted by the more you can visualize yourself doing that the more confident you become the more you become well i can I, i can picture myself doing it the more likely you are to to attain that and so yeah i i've seen so many people um struggle for direction or struggle to work out what's next for them in their role or their career and it's just those two little kind of like nuggets i think can often be uh, can really unlock potential that's there and people don't realize it so i, I don't know if that's of any benefit to anyone listening but this is good as i'm going to give you <laughs> it's probably beneficial to me and john at least uh, yeah that, that that all makes total sense gary gary thanks very much for your time you've been an absolute gem Thank you for the invitation. Cheers, Cheers, Gary. That was great. Cheers, John. Thank you. Cheers.